So when I think about how growing and connecting to nature and work has given me the space to heal, it's allowed me the space to recognise, it's allowed me the space to connect with the inner child, it's allowed me the space to connect with the things that I didn't even know I wanted to connect with. Growing a plant, not an experience I had as a child. Looking after fish and just being with the earth, understanding the practices, connecting with other land workers, being outside, growing sunflowers, like all of these things have allowed me the space to heal in very mysterious ways. Cultivating Justice, Cultivating Justice, Episode 1. So there's a, a kind of community garden that I'm part of in Edinburgh. And I took my own little plot. And it's the first time I've done that, like, on my own. And it was literally, like, I think I grew, like, kale and broccoli. Like, it was just, like, salad, kale and broccoli, something. But I was obsessed with it. Like, I was with the seedlings. I grew them in, in my room and then, like, I planted them. And it's, like, very small scale and, like, very simple. But I was so obsessed with them. I felt like they were, like, my little children or something. I think what I liked about it is I could see how nurturing I can be. And I think that's something that I like to see in myself, maybe being really slow and like giving something a lot of care or like helping something come to life. I think that's what I really enjoy about growing. I think maybe like I didn't expect things to actually grow. <laughs> and so this kind of like celebration of like, yeah, I actually grew and I can eat it. And it's, yeah, yeah. working on the allotment, growing my own produce, sharing my own produce, importantly, and growing flowers and filling my home with, with flowers that I have grown, doing things organically, because that's the way I want to do things, and relying less on the supermarkets. Yeah, I feel, I feel healthier for that, and I'm really thankful for the allotment and for everything it provides, and I'm thankful for my small garden and for the peace it gives me as well. Welcome, Welcome to Cultivating Justice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more time. One, two, three. Welcome, Welcome to Cultivating Justice. My name's Hester Russell. I'm a grower and organiser for Out on the Land. And my name's Sam Siva. I'm a grower, writer and organiser with Land in Our Names. The clips you heard at the start of this episode are part of something we're calling a chorus of voices. The chorus weaves together reflections from black people, people of colour, trans people and queer people on their relationship with land, growing and identity. You'll hear these voices across the Cultivating Justice series. Before we start, a heads up that this series includes discussions of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia and ableism. Please take care as you listen. So, 
What is Cultivating Justice? It's a collaborative project between three grassroots organisations, Land in Our Names, Out on the Land and Farmerama Radio. Land in Our Names or Lion is a grassroots London-based collective committed to reparations in Britain by connecting land and climate justice with racial justice. We're passionate about agroecological methods and we see food justice and climate justice as essential parts of our work. We're striving to create networks between BPOC growers, herbalists, land workers, ecologists and other land-based practitioners. Out on the Land is part of the Landworkers Alliance. We're a group of LGBTQIA landworkers who come together to celebrate each other and our connection to the land. We aim to create an emboldening space to discuss and challenge issues faced by our community and to raise our visibility within land work. The Cultivating Justice Project is aiming to build lasting joy and justice for marginalised communities who are resisting colonial and patriarchal food and farming systems. That includes women, people of colour, trans and queer people and neurodivergent people. We want to challenge stereotypes of who farms and what farming looks like. And we want to explore the ways that we, as marginalised people, organisations and allies, build solidarity and develop shared visions to challenge the social injustices within our food and farming systems. As part of this project, we're also creating zines. The first one's called Gourds, Banjos and Callaloo. It was made by Marcus, who's a part of Lion, and you can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode. The idea is for these podcasts to be kind of like audio zines. So across six episodes, we'll be weaving together interviews, conversations and reflections, as well as music, performance art and field recordings. All of these contributions, these stories, ideas, dreams and voices have been gathered from our networks. This is a grassroots DIY project, just like our organising. In this episode, we'll be hearing an interview with land worker and activist Paola Joya. And part of a conversation I had with Professor Corinne Fowler, an academic and the author of Green Unpleasant Land. music you're hearing right now is a track called Eating Your Castings by Jazz Butt and Harry Biles. It's made up of sounds that Harry and Jazz recorded inside a wormery and a compost heap in an urban nature reserve in East London. You're hearing worms, flies and wood lice shredding, digesting and moving around, as well as some building works in the background. The recordings were remixed by Jazz, aka Guest, who turned them into a short, playful album for the Microbe Disco, which was part of a festival called Electric Dreams.
Paula Joya is a beekeeper and lamb worker who's part of a farming collective in eastern Germany. It's a mixed farm with a vegetable garden, a forest, goats, cattle, chickens, and of course, bees. Paula's also part of the European Coordination of Via Campesina, or ECVC. That's the regional European arm of the international peasants movement, La Via Campesina. Along with other members of ECVC, Paula is in the process of setting up the organisation's gender diversity articulation. Articulations bring people with particular experiences or perspectives together, so they can analyse and discuss ECVC's work through that specific lens. And that allows them to have a stronger voice and participate more effectively in ECVC's working groups. There's already articulations for women and for youth. Before we hear from Paula, we wanted to briefly explain a few of the words that come up in this episode and series. Cis, short for cisgender, a cis person's gender identity is the same as the sex they were assigned when they were born. Trans, short for transgender, a trans person might identify with a different gender than the one they were assigned at birth, or with no particular gender. Hetero, short for heterosexual. Pronouns, these are the words we use to talk about a person when we're not using their name, like she, her, he, him, or they, them. Paola also talks about looking beyond binarities in the context of gender. So moving away from the idea that there are only two distinct genders, male and female. Some people, like me, identify as non-binary, which means we don't identify as men or women. It's a catch-all term for the many different ways that a person can be gender fluid without gender or multiple genders. Yeah, so my name is Paula Joya. I'm originally from Brazil but have been living in Germany for quite a while now, uh, almost 20 years. When it comes to pronouns, I have to say this is always a very difficult question for me to answer. I navigate through different languages. In my mother tongue, which is Portuguese, no, I don't find a pronoun where I see myself, no. Also in the language, I have my all day life, which is German, it's the same. Now this interview we are doing in English, I would say like English has a kind of solution that would work better, (laughs) which is they pronoun. But at the same time, it's like not a language that I have a deeper feeling, no? I don't really get all the nuance that this could have in meaning, no? So this whole story is to say that I would prefer to use no pronouns. I was born in the urban areas in Rio de Janeiro, and then life brought me uh, to Germany around 20 years later. In Germany, I lived in the beginning also in the urban areas. I lived quite long in Berlin, and then I, yeah, I discovered, let's say, the rural life, no? And uh, one, two years later, I did this, yeah, this shift in my life and went to agriculture and I've been doing that for over 10 years now, uh, maybe 12 years, I guess. Before, when I was still living in urban areas, I was already a politically engaged person, no? And for me, it was clear that doing agriculture, there is also an extremely big political dimension in that, referring to the way you do it or you don't do it, you know? So it was quite obvious that when I took this decision to go into farming, I would you know engage myself politically also in the topics that concern agriculture. 
Soon after, Paola got together with other new entrant farmers and they set up an organization called the Bundes Junge Landwirtschaft, or Alliance of Young Farmers, BJL for short. In the early days, the BJL's main aim was to fight land grabbing that was happening in eastern Germany. The BJL soon started working with the ABL, which is a German member of La Via Campesina. In 2013, Paolo was invited to Jakarta in Indonesia to take part in La Via Campesina's sixth international conference. And from that moment, it went quite quickly, my engagement in the European and international level. Paolo got involved with ECVC. Again, that's the umbrella organization for La Via Campesina members in Europe. It has 31 member organizations across 21 European countries, including the UK. We organize uh, here in the region, in, in Europe, you know, towards the European policy agendas, but also bringing topics that our members considered important. And specifically, Paolo got involved with ECBC's women's articulation. But Paolo realized that things just didn't feel right. Everything started not really planned. No, it was more kind of, you know, coming out of my feelings that around 2015, no, having participated in that international conference of Lavia Campesina in Jakarta, and where, of course, there are very strong spaces of women articulation. At some point, I, I realized, okay, it is really good work and very, very important, but I don't feel home, no. I mean, for me, it's extremely important and impressive, you know, how clear La Via Campesina has, you know, the, the values of feminism and uh, how important it is to stand against patriarchy and so on. So they can, on one hand, uh, self-organize themselves, but also, you know, strengthen themselves and come better articulated also to the general spaces. At that time, I didn't even know yet, know the whole history, know, and how much also the women had to struggle for their space in the movement, no? But what I could feel is that it was an important space, but that I didn't feel whole, no? And that a movement which, you know, defends feminist values, which is system critical and so on, I knew that this movement wants to have me there, how I am, you know? But it's not yet said, you know, and not giving visibility to that is also undermining issues that I have, that I bring, and that I think are also important, which are also kind of violations, you know, discriminations and so on in the society, you know, and that in the end, the movement is also reproducing, probably without willing to reproduce, but it's doing so unconsciously. You know? So that's why I, at some point, I think it was around 2015, in one of the women assembly meetings, I prepared in advance a kind of discussion document that I could bring to the women assembly of ECVC. And I brought this document and it was the start of a discussion on that. And it was very nice to, to see how much support, you know, I got there. Just to explain. The way it works in ECBC is that before a general assembly happens, the various articulations hold their own assemblies. It's a chance for them to discuss, clarify and strengthen their positions so they can then do a better job of advocating for them at the general assembly. Normally, the coordinator of the women's articulation would feed back to the general assembly about whatever they've discussed and decided. But this time around, 
when it came to the discussion that Paola had sparked about gender diversity, the coordinator asked Paola to report back instead. She said, okay, I will do the feedback, but this point, you do. Okay, no problem, I can do. But in the end, it's again, myself, you know, putting my body, you know, my feelings, my, my, my person, you know, again, in a situation of vulnerability. It is a, a big step, I think, you know, to, to out yourself for, for the movement, you know. And I was outing myself in that moment for the women articulation, for the women assembly, you know. But then uh, there was not this sensibility there to pick up the topic as a collective topic, you no. Know? So I had to do it. I did. It was okay. But I wish that we could have done different. And I wish that in the future we can do it differently. But in general, it was very good that we started it there. In the General Assembly, there was huge support, also from male members, you no. Know? And this actually empowered myself to keep doing this work. The political willingness was always there, but this has always been a topic with not a huge priority, no? It's important that this is not a one-person agenda, no? That this is a collective agenda. We had spaces, you know, workshops to talk about this, where also, you know, cis hetero members could come and discuss about that to create a sensibility step by step no also to have whole organizations you know coming out no for example the sindicato labrego galego no one of our members they came out as organization and organized our own lgbtqi forum no in galicia for the first time so making this step which is kind of personal, you know, coming out can generate also, you know, processes, collective processes also in the organizations. How does this relate to what's happening in the UK? Yeah, so the work Paula's done to push forward the visibility of gender and sexual minorities is really inspiring. And a lot of it resonates in the UK context too. Out on the land really emerged from the desire and the need for LGBTQ land workers just to meet and connect with each other. Since then, the LWO has facilitated us to become a working group and a collective voice within national spaces. But it's not been an entirely smooth ride. In 2018, one of our members from the LWA was part of the first ECVC LGBTQI gathering in Brussels. And since then, there's been growing momentum to reimagine the agroecological movement with queer folks out and at the forefront. But we encountered transphobia along the way, and it's so often precisely the people whose bodies and humanity are being questioned that have to defend their right to exist and to speak up. It's a painful collective learning process about how to do better at acting in solidarity and allyship. But despite the barriers, it's exciting to feel that we're growing here in the UK and that we're part of this Europe-wide movement and also that we're drawing power and imagination from it as well. Yeah, and I think transphobia within activist spaces is something that is a big issue in Britain in general, and we need to really tackle that together. Yeah, it's completely connected to all the different struggles as well. So go Utel! (laughs) (laughs) Also here in Germany, uh, my own organization started doing this kind of work. And this was nice, you know, that there were other people there taking the lead 
it's very much combined also you know taking you know women issues and diversity issues together and when the people come i mean the individuals themselves they come to the meetings that we organize at european or at international level it is so amazing so touching you know to see it because people express how home they feel you know and how important it is it is sometimes the first time they really feel home within the movement i'm extremely thankful that there is place for that because I mean, I know how much I suffered and I want to make change, no? And so if I have the possibility to contribute to that, I want to do what I can. And I think this is a contribution for the whole movement, no? Because, you know, having empowered members, no? Will help us to get much further as movement, no? covering many more issues and all of these issues they belong to the systemic transformation that we urgently need. In 2017 La Via Campesina's seventh international conference took place in the Basque country. These international conferences are a big deal. They're where the whole movement agrees on its positions, priorities and strategies for the years to come and in 2017 we managed actually to get one reference to the importance of the inclusion of all genders and also diversities in the work of La Via Campesina in the final declaration of the conference. And this is extremely important for us, although it is a small mention, this has a huge dimension because this is what gives us the legitimacy, you know, and the mandate to further develop this work within the international movement. In 2021, ECVC launched a report called Embracing Rural Diversity, Genders and Sexualities in the Peasant Movement. It brings together personal stories from LGBTQIA plus land workers across Europe. Its aim is to inspire open dialogue around gender and sexual diversity in rural areas and in the peasant movement and strengthen the struggle towards inclusive systemic transformation. And although we have a collection of individual stories, together they build a collective piece which brings this collective dimension and the political importance of this work. This work, particularly the work on all these issues of gender inclusion, looking beyond binarities, bringing this topic to the movement, raising awareness, empowering the people within the movement, embracing new faces, embracing new bodies. This is a work that it's not only for the future, I feel. This is a work where I also feel myself healing. Healing from all the violence that I've felt also in my life, you know, And I know that many other bodies are feeling these violences even today. I come from a country where we have the highest rates of murders against trans people. Many, many of them living in rural areas. I left my country. I left my country 20 years ago and I am just starting to understand it now, why I left my country. 
And it's also because of this, because there I could not be myself, or I could not even start understanding myself or finding myself, you know. I think, you know, doing this work is definitely a political work, but what would be political work without subjects behind it, you know? And this is the area of work in my whole political engagement where I feel the deepest that here I also bring my own history, my life history, and where I can contribute really from the deepest of my, my heart. And instead of sucking my energy, this gives me energy, you know? So I feel like healing. I feel my heart is warm. And it's amazing to see how much resonance is out there, you know? But one thing I think is still important, like, okay, we are having this podcast with me, but I mean, it's not a one-person work. And if it is only kind of a one person doing that, you don't get the energy and you don't get it flowing. I think it's, it's important, you know, also to highlight the, the collective dimension of all this. I am one piece in this chain, you know? Yeah. What are your reflections? Yeah, it was so great to hear from Paula about how much this work brings them joy and energy. And I feel like that's such an important thing to feel like this kind of work that we're doing is uplifting and affirming and like energy giving rather than energy draining and just like recognizing the power in that is is really important. It's joyful when it's more that kind of thing rather than ending up feeling like you're defending your your space or or like trying to make yourself heard, which is is the really hard stuff. We need to find ways to resource ourselves better across networks of like solidarity right and then the good bits come in (laughs) and I think what's important is like how this work for like recognizing and embracing like you know gender and sexual diversity or whether that's like racial diversity or something like it just becomes central to any organization or space that talks about human rights or people's rights or whatever like we need to be affirmative supporting empowering spaces for people who might be trans or queer or racial minority or whatever yeah and like integral to the movement rather than as a as an extra or an afterthought and I think that is growing and through work like what Paula's been doing like we are creating more of that kind of movement Yeah, I really resonated with what Paola was saying about that work being put on them to do alone. And I think that's something that often happens to like the most marginalized people when talking about their experiences. And I think you said this before as well, Hester, we spend a lot of time sort of justifying our right to exist or that something we've experienced is real. So I think it is really great that now there's more spaces for other like queer and LGBT folks to connect 
within ECVC and La Via Campesina as a whole. And yeah, I just hope that, you know, there's less spaces where we feel isolated or alone in our struggles. Over the last few years and the more I have been learning and educating myself and wanting to get out and connect more with nature and I guess like land work also, it has given me the space to heal. It has definitely influenced various areas of my life without realising like my mindset being one of them, but also the way that I interact with food and the way that I consume food and how I'm more conscious about seasonal food and how I get access to that. Since moving from a rural landscape into a more urban landscape, I've been feeling more of a pull towards finding communities and spaces where I can be the observer and also learn from elders around me and community leaders around me as to how to get more into land work. And it's a process that I'm trying to take my time with. I really want to learn as much as I can and it's more of a process I'm seeing it as. And it's also about kind of dismantling my own anxiety around that also. I spent my earliest years in a remote mountain village in Cyprus where subsistence farming was the norm. There were loads of strong women who did all the farm work as well as the domestic chores, uh, while the men either worked abroad or sat in cafes playing backgammon. It would never have worked for me to, to grow up there as a gay woman, and I was really fortunate to move to a UK city where I could discover what being gay meant for me in a really supportive community of other queer folk. But slowly over the years, my need to be rooted in the land and directly connected to the food sustaining me began to resurface. And what I began to do was search to find a way to combine both of these elements of my identity. So my mum is Swiss and she grew up on a farm and I grew up going to this farm a lot, but it's like in a really small area in Switzerland, quite racist. And it was kind of like a narrative in my family that we were like the outsiders. Like we wouldn't want to get our hands dirty or like like if we went swimming in the lakes, like can you swim because you know you're like not Swiss and stuff like that. So it's always been something that's part of me, but I kind of felt like it was a place that I didn't belong. And then I tried to find like connections to it through like going to permaculture, workways, where everyone's why or like these kind of things and I've always just seen it as somewhere that like maybe isn't so accessible to me or like not where I belong and then I found Lion and that is the moment that I realised oh my god there are like non-white people growing like I felt like it was too good to be true because I just thought that wasn't an accessible space I thought that wasn't a space that existed because I just hadn't seen it before Cultivating justice. Professor Corinne Fowler is a research expert at the University of Leicester and she's also the director of a project called Colonial Countryside, 
National Trust houses reinterpreted. In Lion, we look at the connections between colonialism, racism and land justice in Britain. Corinne and I spoke together at the Oxford Real Farming Conference in 2022 and afterwards we came together to talk about how the agroecological food growing movement needs to reckon with the history of colonialism and land ownership in Britain in order to become a really just movement. So many people live in cities or in urban environments and there's such a minority of rural working classes now and like throughout the 20th century it's decreased and decreased and more and more people are seeking work or livelihoods in cities because there is less available in the countryside and I think that's part of that dispossession as well and part of how the countryside is being changed through like the fact that a lot of people who made money through colonialism, we're able to buy up land to create their great estates or to just increase how much land that they owned. And so the countryside becomes like this place of like exclusion and exclusivity. And there ends up being like a culture that is connected to it, that is very much rooted in these middle-class polite culture or whatever, which is, you know, dictating who is deserving to be in these spaces and then through conservation which is deeply connected to colonialism as well is this idea of protecting nature from people that there's these working class people these people of color these urban people cannot be trusted to be in nature because they're just going to damage it and I think this is part of the legacy of colonialism of the enclosures of displacement of people from the countryside but also this forgetting of this history is like there's also this loss of connection to the land and there's a loss of understanding of what nature in Britain looked like and was and our relationship to it and I think that's what's quite sad and I think people are trying to reconnect especially over the past couple of years under the pandemic I definitely feel like people are finding this love for being outside and questioning why is it that I am not able to access so much of these spaces and I think that's one element that I think about is how that spiritual connection has been taken away and how it becomes very difficult to build a life in the rural spaces because of how they're shaped around tourism or you know a lot of farming is really large scale and it's quite difficult to earn enough of a living on even small farms. These are things that I hope change (laughs) as well. Yeah, I'd only add to that that there is a lot of interesting work done in the field of hate studies and rural racism in particular as a phenomenon which is demonstrably present in different ways in different places at different times and to different degrees of severity as well, from name calling to staring, to making people feel uncomfortable, to attacking an Indian takeaway in a little village or excluding people from various rural programs on the grounds that they're not a good fit. These sorts of behaviors which are a problem, but which are also rooted in an idea about who more naturally supposedly belongs to rural places i.e. white people, and a forgetfulness to black working presences historically as servants, as kidnapped people, 
as children, African children working in big country houses, as people who've been alluded to in books like Black Tudors by Miranda Kaufman, and um, this idea that, well, you know, the histories of working people in Britain are exclusively white. It's also not very helpful when you look at the historical record. It's much more complicated than that, especially during the colonial period. I do mention in my book, Green Unpleasant Land, that there are a lot of stories about farmers and rural racism too, without kind of wanting to drag us back to the more negative. There's a farmer in Leicestershire who had the police called out on him multiple times for picking his own sweet corn from his own field that he was renting. And Benjamin Zephaniah also talks about how he went for a country run and it launched a helicopter and a couple of police cars trying to investigate, you know, a black man running through the fields, you know, oh my God. So we have got a long way to go for sure. But it's obvious that the structural inequalities which racism is part of and incorporated into, you need to understand the connections between class and race and not talk about the working class as if the working class is white and then people of colour are something else. <laughs> In fact, COVID has been quite useful for understanding how our society is structured, who is doing which kinds of jobs and what kinds of risks that's associated with and how much more work is needed to be done. We have an opportunity here to become more conscious and aware of what's going on and to think about what can be done to support everybody's well-being in being able to access rural spaces. And I think connected to that is this need to change how people imagine the countryside like there's this stagnancy which is deeply connected to it and it's because people see it as like this escape from how quickly and um, intense change happens within urban spaces but as I see it the countryside is really just a continuation of the city it's never been isolated from the city there's so many things that these changes affect and throughout history, as you were saying, like the countryside has never been like this purely white monocultural or homogenous space. There's so much differences depending on the region, but also that it's never been completely isolated from British history. And why should it be now? How can it become like full of vitality? You know, the trajectory for a lot of rural spaces now is that they are sort of holiday, escapist fantasies for people who can afford to be there and those who can't face a lot of exclusion and hostility and it could be so much more it could be so much more interesting and it could be this dynamic place where people could actually live and build communities you know instead of being increasingly isolated and alienated. So what would it look like for the agroecological or the regenerative farming movement to reckon with the histories that Sam and Corin have been talking about? How can people who are part of those movements, whether that's as landholders or land workers, how can we grapple with these histories and move forward? You have to learn about the history, but also recognise that, you know, you could be perpetuating some of this by not speaking up, by not catching yourself, by not like actively 
trying to change the way that your community, your spaces interact with people of color, but also these knowledges. And I think there's such a responsibility for farm workers within the agroecological good food, good farming um, movement to not just see this as like, okay, I grow organic and like, I don't really care about all these other like social justice things because they're not that important. It's like, what are you looking towards? Just like a green capitalist movement that doesn't really change anything. Do you just want everyone to just buy organic food? But that's not realistic because of the way that the organic food market is shaped here. It is incredibly classed, it's incredibly inaccessible, and it is totally tied up with like privilege and also with like an extractive industry. And it's like, okay, how do we actually grow food that people want? How do we engage people who are working class, who are people of color, who are otherwise marginalized from accessing these um, products? And I think that really takes recognizing what type of change do you want you know and how is this something that can actually be sustainable how can people afford to live by working in these fields and at the moment people are really earning very little and there's such little protections for farm workers with like bosses or abusive landowners or whatever and that's why it's important to have unions set up. That's why it's important to have power and privilege training and learnings and why it's important to really reckon with the histories of how this land has come to be what it is, I think. Recently, I went camping in Sussex in the countryside and because it's been the Jubilee year or whatever, um, it's really surprising how many Union Jacks you encounter and like even like this idea of like the British countryside, it was very picturesque but then at the same time, I think I'm very lucky now that I have like the confidence and the strong belief that, you know, I deserve to be in a space that I think if I didn't have that, I would have found it quite hostile being in the countryside. So I see like how I've got that privilege now to be like, oh yeah, we can transform the British countryside. But then if there's still this great like attachment and like romantic vision of like colonial Britain for the people who are actually there, like it feels like you'll have to encounter quite a fight to like even get that. This is why I think it is important to value city and urban spaces as well, because, you know, like if you've got trauma associated with like this type of hostility that is very rural British, then existing in that space, living in that space will always be a bit of a uphill battle. Like you have to be really committed to it. And I think it's also okay to commit to urban spaces. It's kind of interesting chatting about the Jubilee, really, because I, I really noticed there was there was so much um, activity going on around that weekend and there was so much celebration and communities organising and street parties and just, like, really, like, cool events if it wasn't sort of just, like, only in the celebration of, like, Queen and Country that we're able to do those things. 
you and Crone sort of talked a lot about a sort of collective dispossession of the countryside and like really what everyone is searching for is like vibrancy and resilience in those in those communities there's this sort of defense of the countryside of this like homogenous and unchanging rural landscape and like actually we're never going to get that vibrancy and resilience without allowing sort of space for diversity and and change and sustainable livelihoods and I don't know there's just so many barriers to that and something about the jubilee like the way that people come together in celebration could be so amazing and you know it can happen but it takes something like that to make it happen in this really exclusive space mm-hmm. yeah totally and like at a time right now where people have to deal with like financial difficulties to see how much money the government has put into like supporting people have jubilee celebrations it's like oh imagine if they just let us do that to have like street parties and like spaces where you can just come together and have fun with your neighbors and that stuff's great in theory (laughs) per street parties against monarchic propaganda The othering effect is not necessarily an explicit threat. It's not that it's explicitly unsafe, although it might be, for a person of colour to be there in a kind of predominantly white rural space. But there's something implicit, there's something in the nature of that relationship that is there, that may not be mine, that may be there from previous generations, that says this relationship has an edge to it. And that is enough for our nervous systems to be activated, which means that quite literally we can't relax. (laughs) And if we want to enjoy these places, relaxation is part of it. And so so acknowledging that helps, acknowledging, okay, nothing's going to happen here. This is the relationship. It's not that. It's like a prerequisite for us being able to relax. On both sides, on both sides, it's for everybody. So acknowledging the the trouble of that or the bravery that it takes to do that is really, really important. How people feel in a landscape, I think that's really important because landscapes communicate symbolically or, you know, in the imagination, particular joys, but also fears. You know, and I think the issue about being conspicuous is quite can be quite an issue for people. I've never actually had a problem with this when I'm alone with nature. It's really more about rural people and their prejudices, which make it hard. Because even if people aren't overtly hostile, I still find myself feeling out of place and uncomfortable or, yeah, just uncomfortable, I'd say within an overwhelmingly traditional and straight environment. It wasn't until I discovered intentional communities and found a rural farming one that I really found my feet and felt that I could express myself, my gay identity, on the land. I think that's because this community particularly recognises that you can only get the best out of everyone when they're truly able to be themselves. I think 
that also can take a lot of courage and honesty sometimes. But if it's met with benevolence and kindness, then everyone, as I say, can flourish. And it really works where I live now. I mean, I, I don't know what I would do if I, I, I couldn't regularly, like, get out. I, I have a small paved back garden, but I've made it into an oasis. You know, it's filled with pots at the minute. Tulips are, are coming up in like every possible surface and it's exhilarating. I love it. And last summer, it was a jungle. You were like had to maneuver yourself around tons of plants. And there were flowers and it was just so green and it was wonderful. And similarly, my allotment is just giving me so much pleasure and I really, really, really want more people to have that. <laughs> and I know plenty of people are seeking it. But being on the allotment in particular, getting down there, getting my hands into the soil. Oh my gosh. I it's hard to really describe, but that feeling, like you can feel the Earth's energy kind of coming up into your fingers. And oh my gosh, it's just such a wonderful thing. It's such a magical thing. And I think the more people who can experience that, the better. The Cultivating Justice podcast series is made by Hester Russell, Abby Rose, Dora Taylor, Katie Revel, Nadia Mehdi, and me, Sam Siever. This episode featured conversations with Paola Joya and Corinne Fowler. Reflections from Sasha, aka Mind Your Implants, Danny Foster, Dav Singh, Tanisha Williams, Nancy Winfield, Shrikanth Narayanan, and Philomena DeLima. A music by Jazz Butt, aka Guest, and Harry Biles, as well as Bianca Wilson, aka Island Girl. Our series music is by Taha Hassan. Thank you to our funders, Farming the Future and the Roddick Foundation. And a big thank you to everyone who's contributed in any way. Visit landworkersalliance.org.uk slash cultivating justice to find out more.